Welcome to the messages of Cornerstone Anglican Church. We find a new dimension in life through the sacrifice of Jesus. In this episode, Pastor Andrew deals with the famine of God's word throughout the world. I didn't realize until I read this Amos passage about three times. This incredible verse here, it's verse 11. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I'll send a famine throughout the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. And you know, we live in such a day that over the last few decades we've lived in a culture and a church culture, and a world culture where there is a famine on the Word of God. And it can't help to be a famine if your scholars are wanting to dismantle the Bible and what it says, to take away its authority, to take away its high Christology. What's that mean? That means Jesus is the Messiah. The scholars have wanted to remove Jesus from his post. They wanted to remove him from being the Christ. They didn't like the way that the Gospels presented Jesus, and they really didn't like the way that Paul presented Jesus. And so they began to dismantle the Gospels, dismantle the epistles. So if you were a commentary today, and especially if you get into, say, one or two Timothy, uh, Thessalonians, probably Colossians, Ephesians. They would say, we don't know that Paul actually wrote that. And then someone would say, we know that Paul definitely didn't write that. And you think, hold on a sec, hold on. It says that Paul wrote it. But then you get in the Gospels and say, look, well, we don't really think Jesus really said that. And not only that, they say, oh, look, I don't think he said it in that place. That's in chapter 5. I actually think that came from chapter 4, and some editor moved it over. Right? So we've got editors moving bits and pieces of the gospel all over the place. Now, this is a very simplified picture. But how can you have the word of God coming when you keep dismantling what he's already said? So how do we get the Word of God in such a culture? 
How does it come to us? Where do we find it? Where do we look for it? Where did God find men and women who deliver the word? Where do they come from? Do they come out of our theological colleges? Say, do they come out of our Calvinist-orientated training program? Do they come out of our evangelical training program? Do they come out of our liberal training programs? No, they don't. They may learn from those environments. They may gain certain understandings. But the word of God does not come to them by any of those means. They come from an encounter with God. And I remember that encounter as clearly as it had happened yesterday or today. I was living at a theological college and I was going to my car which was parked on the street and I had a big pile of books in my hand and my Bible was on the top and it started to rain. So I started to race across the road and I wanted to get my boot open as quickly as I could to get the books out of the rain and my Bible fell off the top and landed in a puddle of muddy water. So I threw the other books in the boot. I reached down to rescue my Bible. And God said to me, you're upset about your Bible, aren't you? I says, yes, it's all muddy. And he says, that's how I feel when men tread their muddy boots all over my word. And I forgot the rain. And I was just stunned. And I thought that God would share his heart with me at that point in time. But it changed my whole perspective on the Bible. And as I've noted, yes, there are some complications. For instance, God reveals to Moses in Exodus 3 and 6 that his name was Yahweh. And he says, I've never revealed this to the patriarch, Abraham Isaac and Jacob. Well, that's interesting. Because if you go and read Genesis, Yahweh's all over Genesis. And not only is Yahweh in the instructional parts, you've got Abraham using the word Yahweh. You've got Abraham's neighbour who's not a God person using the word Yahweh. You've got his wife using the word Yahweh. So, yeah, there's some complications But it's his word. And we need to read it, listen to it, hear it, digest it. But it's not the only place the word will come to us. It will come in the midst of our worship when we have men and women who have been impacted by God about his word. And what I want to pick up today is if you have any doubts... Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 29, Paul wants to make it clear. Now the other problem is that some want to use this passage from Colossians to link Jesus to Lady Wisdom. And it doesn't actually do that. Because as we noted, Lady Wisdom is created. Whereas the Son of God is eternal, only begotten of the Father. 
God begot the Son. In a sense, an eternal birth to the Son. He didn't beget us. He created us. But where the confusion comes is in the opening phrases. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now you could take that to mean, okay, God created Jesus first and then he created us, right? But that's not what it actually goes on to say. That's not what Paul intends. He says, for in him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That is not Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom was there when God was doing the creating. God did not do the creating through Lady Wisdom. But God certainly did the creating through the Son of God, who became Jesus the man. Not only did he do the creation through Jesus, the creation was done for Jesus in the purpose and the plan of God. Now, okay, what is Paul getting at when he calls him the firstborn? As if there's a second, a third, a fourth, and a fifth born, right? That would be the sense of giving him the firstborn. And my gut feeling is that something has shifted here. And we noted when we were looking at wisdom that what shifted was that wisdom that was a created entity couldn't fulfill the role that she was given. And so when the Son of God became the man Jesus, the incarnate Son of the living God, fully God and fully man, Jesus took over the work of wisdom and became our wisdom for us. So when God put us in Jesus on the cross, there on the cross he also put the law, and some scholars actually link the law into wisdom, but he put wisdom there as well, my gut feeling. The wisdom like the law had great ideals, great expectations, but had no power to keep the law or to keep wisdom. Whereas Jesus in us enables us to do both. Enables us to keep the essence of the law and allows us to have wisdom. Jesus is our wisdom. He's our access now to wisdom. So if you need wisdom, go to Jesus. So what is going on then here in Colossians? Something has changed in what God is doing with us. God is about to do something in Jesus that brings us into the dimension of God not simply being created beings. That we're about to have the ability to engage God that had not been able to be done by anybody else on the planet before Jesus came. 
And Paul is wanting us to get a sense of this, that Jesus is doing something that is actually opening up for us a totally new dimension that never existed before until the Son of God took human form in the person of Jesus. Paul goes on to say, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So not only did he create what we know, but he actually is constantly sustaining us. If God was to remove his presence from this planet, we'd all die. You can't see him at work. You can't see him doing it. But not only did he create it, but he sustains it. That very concept and idea challenges the enlightenment to the depths of its being. Because the old scientists and enlightenment wanted to get the idea that yeah, God created this planet and he put all these laws to work and those laws work, which are called natural laws like gravity and all that, and then he left us alone. And we did not need him to run life. But if he continues to sustain us, then that really adds an element that is not there in enlightenment thinking. And that's what Paul says here. He holds all things together. He has not left us. He has not deserted us. He is not aloof. The very essence that we can breathe today is not just because we have oxygen and air and all that, but because the Son of the living God sustains the planet upon which we live. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Okay, so the second thought that firstborn comes in, the resurrection in Paul's thinking Jesus is the first resurrection because he's the major resurrection. Without Jesus rising from the dead, well, we're not going to rise at all. But what Paul is wanting to get across is that somehow or other, what God is doing with Jesus on the cross and the resurrection is doing something in us and for us and with us. That we are being brought into a totally new dimension that we did not have prior to the cross, that he's the first to be raised, followed by us. That's the gist. Right? So what Jesus is doing here in the cross, what God is doing in Jesus, is going to have an eternal impact on our life. So that in everything, he might have supremacy. You see, we forget this point, practically, I reckon. We forget his boss. He's the Lord. He is the supreme authority over the church. In fact, he's the supreme authority in the universe. He's the supreme authority over every created element that there is. Now, the devil might tell us he's in charge, but he's just lying, as he normally does that Jesus has supreme authority. 
And then God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Okay, so let's understand. When the church says he's fully God and fully human, he actually means it. It's not like a bit of God came down. No, Jesus is fully God. But he's also fully human. And we need those two elements for what God did in Jesus to be real. It's no good for Jesus just to be fully God and a bit of a man. He needs to be fully man. Because when he goes to the cross, he goes as one of us. When he dies on the cross and God puts us in him, he dies for us. Otherwise, he's just a man dying there. And the church scholars over thousands of years have had great difficulty with the Son of God dying on the cross. So early scholars, and the church didn't accept their scholarship, basically said what happened was just before Jesus spoke his last words, the Son of God left Jesus. So the Son of God didn't have to die there on the cross. So it was just the man Jesus left. That sounds reasonable, but it's not true. But the problem is, if that's what happened, then the cross has no power at all. The power of the cross is that the incarnate Jesus, the God-man Jesus, died for us on the cross. And it is that that makes us in Christ the power that it has to bring us eternity, to bring us into eternity, to live with God in eternity. That something in the power of God is starting to become a power in us. Then he says, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So what God is doing with the death of Jesus on the cross is something in us, something for us, something that is actually changing the dimension of engagement with God for us. One of those things, of course, is dealing with our sin and our rebellion. It says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So there in the physical being of Jesus on the cross, God is putting us right. You ever felt that you're not much of a Christian? That you get things wrong? That you do things wrong? You fall short time and time again. 
You go to God and say, God, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? God doesn't think, oh, will I or won't I? I'm really getting sick and tired of all these Christians not doing what they should be. How am I going to forgive this guy? Do you wonder that, whether he will or he won't? Will he forgive me? Paul is declaring that when he looks at you in your sin, when he looks at you and you're confessing it to him, he is seeing Jesus on the cross. Right? He's not making a decision whether or not he will forgive you. He may be just checking whether you're really being sincere about it. That's a different question, isn't it? Like some Catholics have said to me, I go to confession on Saturday night and then I do whatever I like the rest of the week. I don't think God is really impressed by that confession. That's not what we're talking about here. It is when I do come and confess to him. He doesn't even think twice about whether he will. He has already made that decision by putting his son on the cross. So when he looks at you, and he looks at me, he sees the blood of Jesus on us. And we are clean. What does he say? He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And you know, when the devil begins to tell you you're not much of a Christian, tell him to jump in the lake. God has put me in Jesus and Jesus in me to the extent that there are no longer accusations. When I come to him and admit what I've done and ask his forgiveness, I am forgiven without a shadow of a doubt, no matter what it is I've done. That is a change in dimension. We are new creations, we said last week. Why are we new creations? Because God has changed not just the rules. He's changed the whole dimensional rules. The things that used to work against us now work for us because of what he physically did with Jesus on the cross. For us. When we live that gospel, we no longer have a famine of the word of God. We have the power of God's word with us. But also, it doesn't matter what the world around us is doing. It doesn't matter what the church around us is doing. We have a powerhouse response to that and it's in these words of Paul we have the gospel which is what God did in Christ on the cross for us that washes us clean from sin that changes the very picture of us before God when he looks at us because he looks at us not only in Christ but Christ in us and you know, if we will preach that word inside and outside the church, 
if we'll just keep reminding one another and others in that Christian community of just what this gospel is about. You don't know what might happen to them. You don't know how that might break through. You don't know how many holes that might just put in their theology and in their thinking. And you have no idea how that just might bring them to Christ in a new and a real way. Christ in you, the hope of glory, not just for you, but Christ in you, the hope of glory for them as well. This passage is the undermining of unbelief. It is the essence of breaching the power of darkness and releasing people's lives from darkness and bringing light into them. And now, Father, we pray that you would send laborers into the harvest to help us. But also, Lord, that you would bring us to the harvest, that we can indeed reap your harvest and bring men, women, and children into your kingdom and into your church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to hear more great messages from Pastor Andrew, check out our Facebook page or look us up on the net at cornerstone-church.com.au.